Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, if you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's on page 76. Exodus 24, in a moment we'll begin at verse 1. This summer we've been looking at the question of worship. What is worship? What are the elements of worship? What, why is worship important? And just a quick summary, we saw that one of the main reasons that worship is important is because of its formative nature in our lives. The Bible talks about the fact that we become like that which we worship. And if we worship idols that are dead and deaf and dumb and blind, that's what we will be. But when we worship the true God in whose image we were created, we become like what we were meant to be. Worship is formative. Worship is given by God in the Bible and is to be given to the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worship is a corporate expression of God's worth. In fact, the English word worship we saw was rooted in the word worth. It's worthy-ship. Worship. So it's God's value to us. What is his worth? Worship is to be according to God's plan. Last week we looked at how something called the regulative principle of worship. It is the logical conclusion that we must draw. If we are trying to please God, then we need to listen to God about how to do that. It is also the biblical conclusion that we saw from many examples that God is to be worshipped in the way that he has set forth. So that raises the question, what are the parts of worship? What are the things we're saying that we must worship according to what God has said? We have to ask ourselves, what are those things? And so we're going to look this morning at Exodus 24 verses 1 through 11. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. That means, among other things, that if we want to know what is proper worship, then we have to know this one. We invite you now to hear the word of Almighty God from Exodus 24. Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Uh, we're jumping in kind of the middle of the book of Exodus here. I'll remind you, though, that here from this point and forward, we're going to see that the elders of Israel routinely stand in for the people of Israel. And in fact, in this text, we're going to see how the uh, it's the elders who are called to this meeting, and yet it's going to turn right around and make references to the people participating in this meeting. They are there by virtue of the fact that their elder representatives are there. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules, and all the peoples answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. 
And they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief, uh, of the pe uh, chief men of the people of Israel. By the way, you're going to remind yourself, what is this? He did not lay his hand upon them. Remember that when you enter the presence of the Lord, those when the unholy comes into the presence of the holy, they're struck dead. That is the pattern we see in Scripture. And here is a comment that God allowed these sinners to come into his presence, and he did not strike them dead for it. That's what's being said there. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Lord God, reveal to us the meaning of this, your word, and let us see how it applies to us even today. And as we are uh, uh, instructed by it and, and encouraged through it, we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and minds, that we would, like the people of this text, Declare our intent to obey and to follow you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. First in the Bible are exemplars. First, things that happen first, things that come first, are routinely held up as exemplars, as examples in the Bible. We needn't get very far in Scripture to see this pattern. Adam and Eve are, for the rest of the scripture, exemplars for what marriage is supposed to be. The Bible is full of important people who were polygamists. Abraham was a polygamist. Jacob was a polygamist. David and Solomon were polygamists. And the Bible never comes straight out and condemns them, and yet we're very confident in our argument that marriage was supposed to be between one man and one woman. Why? Because of the example of Adam and Eve as the first married couple. Firsts in the Bible are exemplars. Abraham was not the first man of faith, and yet he is the exemplar. We have examples of men like Job and Enoch and Noah and others before him who were men of faith. But with Abraham, we have something different. We have a first. He is the first that we're aware of that is fully a pagan. The book of Joshua says that he lived beyond the river worshiping idols. He was an utter, absolute pagan, and God called him to be a Christian. And the rest of the Bible holds up Abraham as the exemplar of a living by faith and of righteousness that is gained through faith. David, the first king chosen by God, rather than Saul, who was chosen by the people, David is the exemplar. He is the first, and he is the example. He is the standard in which all the other kings are judged, and which the king of kings, the one who will come someday and reign forever, will exceed the example of David. 
Moses and Elijah are exemplars rather than their successors, Joshua and Elisha. You know, it's interesting, in all the Bible, there are very few human beings in the Bible for whom no sin, no error is recorded. Elisha is one of them. There's nothing negative said about Elisha in all the Bible. And yet he's not the example. The whining, complaining, self-pitying Elijah is the example throughout the rest of the scriptures because he came first. So if we're going to study corporate worship, if we're going to ask what are parts of corporate worship, what are the elements of corporate worship, where should we look? The answer is we ought to look at the first corporate worship service. And this is the record of that. This is the first corporate worship service in history. You say, Scott, there were worship before this? Yes, there was. Adam worshipped, Abel worshipped, Noah worshipped, Abraham worshipped, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all worshipped. But they did so in the context of their families. It was family worship, not corporate worship, not the people of God in mass, on the whole, brought into the presence of God to worship him. This here is the first corporate worship service. Let me set the place in history where we are. In Exodus chapter 2, in verse 24 of Exodus 2, we hear, we read this, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The Exodus began when God remembered his covenant with his people. And then he acts through Moses to free the people. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me. Reminder, we saw a few weeks back, that word serve in the Old Testament is a commonly used word for worship. In other words, let them go that they may worship me. It's a play on, they are serving you, Pharaoh, as your slaves, but they need to serve and work for me. But it's a play on the word because serve is also used for worship. By the way, what are we in right now? We're in a worship service. We still tie those ideas together even today. Let my people go that they may serve me. Later, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my firstborn Israel go that they may worship me. The Exodus was so that people could worship. Of course, Pharaoh says, I do not know this Yahweh, neither will I let your people go. And God says, well, you're going to get to know me. And the ten plagues unfold. And what is the tenth of those plagues? It is a plague upon the firstborn of Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was mistreating the firstborn of God. And the people go, and they leave, and they run out and then they're trapped against the Red Sea. And God saves them. And they cross the Red Sea, and then they're at risk of dying of thirst in the desert. And God provides water out of a rock. And then they're at risk of dying of hunger, and God provides manna. And then they're at risk of dying of malnutrition, and God sends in some quails to add protein to the diet. 
And then they're at risk of dying from just their own sinfulness and their infighting. And God sends Jethro, and he instructs Moses to raise up a system of courts and judges by which the people might be protected from their own sinfulness. And those are the chapters that intervene between the Passover in chapter 13 and the first God meeting with his people in chapter 19. Those are the things that are happening. And then in chapter 19 of Exodus, we're told that three months have passed since they left Egypt. We're not very far into the life of God's people. Just three months. And God comes down to the mountain and meets with them in Exodus 19. And he renews his covenant with them. And the people say, yes, we will do all that God tells us to do. And then they say to Moses, but please, in the future, don't have God talk directly to us. That was terrifying. And then Moses goes up. What happens next? Exodus chapter 20. Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets from God a summary of the law of God. Why? The people have said we will do all that God says. Now we need to know what God says. By the way, this is a routine thing in covenants. We must understand this. This is the nature of a covenant. The covenant is being renewed. And covenants include stipulations. Always have. Our boys, as you probably know, our two youngest are in Poland right now with the army. Why? Because Poland and the United States have entered into a covenant called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They have agreed to certain terms and stipulations, one of which is mutual defense and mutual training. And so in keeping that covenant, they are over there training with the Polish army. When these Covenants, you know, we see these things, you know, uh, 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 it's a big deal. You, you get together and you have a press conference and you sign paperwork and you have a meal together and you celebrate. These covenants always include the stipulations, the agreement of what you're going to do. And so Exodus 20, we have the Decalogue, the ten words, the summary of what God requires, the ten commandments. And then in Exodus 20, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, we have a, a more fleshed out, still summary, but a fuller summary of what God requires. It's given in case law format. If this, then do that. If this, then do that. We have a case law summary of what God requires. And then we get to Exodus 24. They're just three months out of Egypt. And we have here a, a description of this first worship service. And what is going on here? Well, this is God calling them. God says, come up and worship me. God sets the liturgy. God prints the bulletin and decides what is the order of service. And it is the first corporate worship of the people of God. And it is worthy of our consideration now. Look at verse 4. There in verse 4, what do we have there? It says, uh, uh, and, he, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now what is he writing down there? Well, he's writing down what was given in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. This summary, the Ten Commandments, and then the case law summary, that's what Moses has written down. Now stop and think about something. This has got some important implications. By the way, it's been a grace to me. I'm, 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 I 
think this fall, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. And in my study of Genesis and my study of this passage kind of dovetailed in an interesting way. What is the first scripture written? It's not Genesis. The Bible did not begin with the writing of Genesis. We're only three months out of Egypt, and there's been a lot going on. Moses has been a pretty busy guy for those three months. He has not written the book of Genesis yet. What is the first scripture written? It's Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. This is the oldest part of the Bible. Here we have Moses beginning to write down God's word. And we see the prominent place it plays in this worship service. So, what do we learn about worship from this passage? As we look at this, what do we see about worship? Here is the single most important thing we must see. Covenant worship. I'm sorry, corporate worship is covenant. <laughs> corporate worship is covenant renewal. If you hear nothing else, hear that. Corporate worship is covenant renewal. If you remember nothing else, remember that. And yes, I'm going to say it again. Corporate worship is covenant renewal. Because as that begins to sink in, as that begins to take hold in your heart and mind, that will begin to transform how we think about worship. I will tell you it has already begun to do so for me in the preparation of this sermon. In thinking about these things, it's begun to transform how I think about worship. If you look there, you say, Scott, how do we know this is covenant renewal? What's the proof? Well, look there closely. What do we see? In verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is standard covenant language. This is covenant response. We see happening right there. Um, then in verse 7, we see that the book of the covenant was read. And then in verse 8, we see that the blood of the covenant was applied. This is covenant renewal. Corporate worship is covenant renewal. And that's why it's corporate. God did not make a covenant with you. Rather, he made a covenant with you. And there we have the problem of the modern English language. As you know, our daughter-in-law has joined us, and I'm learning some southernese from her. And so I will translate this into southernese. God did not make a covenant with you. He made a covenant with y'all. And he did not just make a covenant with y'all. He made a covenant with all y'all. All those who have ever been or ever will be. All those who are descended from Abraham by the faith of Abraham. We are not in a personal relationship with God in the way that we Americans think of that word personal. It is not a personal relationship with God in the sense that you can't talk to me about it, or you have no business thinking about it, or it's not connected, it's just me and my but God. No, 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 no. There is no example of that anywhere in Scripture. God's 
covenant is with his people, plural, not with persons individually. And that's why it's corporate. That's why we gather together. Because we're in this together, called by God together. Corporate worship is covenant renewal, and covenants are made with people groups and nations. God makes them. Covenant worship is corporate renewal, so what do we see as the elements in this service? What When we gather to renew the covenant, to have God renew it with us, what do we see? Well, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 there in chapter 24. What do we see going on? Well, we have scripture reading. We have scripture reading. Uh, 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 then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. The word Bible is our word for this book. The Bible never calls itself the Bible. One of the phrases, one of the terms the Bible does use of itself is that right there, the book of the covenant. And all the scriptures that were available at the time were Exodus 20 through 23. And that's what was read. So we see scripture reading as a part of the worship of God's people at the very first corporate worship service. It is a reason, it is the reason, that we emphasize scripture reading here at Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church. Why most Sundays we have at least four scriptures read in the public worship of God. And some Sundays it vastly exceeds that. Because that's what we see in this corporate worship service. What else do we have there? Look at verses 3 and verse 7. We have this idea, this commitment to obedience. The people say, we will do, we will do, we will do. What is tied in with that? Well, partly it's an admission that we haven't done. We will do because we recognize that we haven't done. It is an admission of guilt what we call our confession of sin and our prayer and our desire to be led into faithfulness. It is also the reason that preaching is different from teaching. We all know instinctively the difference between preaching and teaching, even if we can't articulate it. I've used this example before. I have never heard a teenager, in all my years of working with teenagers, I never once heard a teenager complain to his, his or her peers, I wish my parents would stop teaching at me. They will say, I wish my parents would stop preaching at me. Why? Because preaching includes a command, a directive to do something in response. And that's what the people are agreeing to. We have been told to do something, and we will do it. Our confession of sin and our preaching are rolled up in this right here. What else do we see as elements of worship? Look at verse 5. We see offerings. Look at verse 5 there. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. The burnt offering is a self-descriptive, self-explanatory offering. It is burnt. It is burned entirely, completely. It is turned over to God. It has no practical use on this earth, except for one little detail. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, we see the burnt offering is the atoning sacrifice. The atonement 
has no practical value, then the burnt offering has no practical value. But the atoning sacrifice, they laid their hands on the burnt offering, they confessed their sins and put their sins upon the burnt offering, and that it was utterly and completely destroyed. And with it, their sins completely destroyed. Jesus, though not burnt, becomes the atoning sacrifice in the new covenant. He is the one that takes sin away, just as the burnt offering did here. And then what is the other offering we see there? It is the peace offering. This goes by other names, sometimes referred to as the fellowship offering. When we look at this more fully in Leviticus, we see, as it's described, that the peace offering was, as we see here, was an offering eaten, eaten by the worshipers, but not taken home and eaten there, but rather eaten in the presence of God. Sit down in the courtyard of the tabernacle or the temple and eat the that was an astounding thing. A couple of comments. One, pagan religions would frequently leave food for their god to eat. That's not what this is. This is not leaving it there and walking away so that God can eat it. God has no need of food. He has no need of provision from you or me. But he does say to you and me, you may eat this in my presence. Which brings up the next thing. Those of us who live in small towns like Easton and the surrounding communities, we're probably a little uh, knocked off our game when we go into a large populated area. A few times I've been in some really truly big cities. It's a little weird when I'm sitting at McDonald's and somebody comes and sits down at the same table with me and starts eating their lunch. It freaks me out a little bit. Why? Because we instinctively know that when you sit down and eat a meal with somebody, it implies a relationship. It implies familiarity, intimacy, connection. God says to his people, sit down and eat with me. Be familiar with me. Act like you know me. Act like we are friends, like we're family. Like we have a relationship. And the covenants of this world are signed when nations agree to things like a NATO treaty or any other. What always happens is always followed by a state dinner. The relationship has been established now, let's eat together. And what do we see at the very end of this passage, at the close of this section? The very last thing we read, they beheld God and ate and drank. These oxen that had been sacrificed were now cut into steaks, and they sat down and they ate them in the presence of God. It was interesting that even more than the Passover, this is probably the precursor our meal with God. 
Jesus himself, when instituting the Lord's Supper, picks up this passage. Luke 22, verse 20. Luke 22, 20 says this. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. He is quoting Exodus 24, 8. The blood of the covenant. And in fact, the ESV, the NASB, the, the, the NIV, they all footnote Exodus 24, 8. And point us back here. Jesus said in the communion table, sit down with me and eat the sacrifice. Except that we didn't bring it this time. We didn't have to provide the sacrifice. He did. His is both the atoning sacrifice and the peace offering. His is both the burnt offering, utterly destroyed, in order to destroy our sin, and the peace or the fellowship offering, so that we might have communion with God, so that we might partake of His table. And throughout this whole worship service in Exodus 24, they have been talking, they have been saying aloud various things. What is the underlying assumption? Well, they're saying they will do what they've been told. They're saying they will keep the covenant. What are they assuming? They're assuming God is listening. They're assuming God is hearing them. And when you speak and expect God to hear, what do we call that today? We wouldn't gather for a midweek speaking God hears sermon service, but we would gather for a midweek prayer service. All of this is done with the assumption of prayer. That we're talking to God in the midst of it, in the conversation with God. Corporate worship is covenant renewal, and the elements of covenant renewal that we see here in Exodus 24 are God's word being read and expounded. Just as we saw in our Nehemiah 8 Old Testament reading, that God, that the word of God was read, and the priest explained it and gave the sense of it. Corporate commitment to obeying God's word. We will do it. That is the assumption we have when we preach, when we give an exhortation, as was used in our New Testament reading. Offerings were made, as we did this morning, but more importantly, as Christ did on our behalf. And there was communion in this first worship service. He ate and drank in the presence of God. Now, some of you say, well, pastor, that was Israel's corporate worship. That applied to them back then. How does this connect to us today? Well, it would be easy to get confused on this. Let me offer an illustration. So as I'm driving north and east and along Washington Street, I come to a light. And if I go straight at that light, I'm no longer on Washington Street. I'm on Glebe Road. Well, that took me a little while to figure out when I first moved here. To stay on Washington Street, I have to veer off to the right. Now, if you take a map of Easton and remove all the street names from it and give a complete stranger and you say, here I am on this street, how do I stay on this street? They would say, well, you go straight right there. 
Doesn't matter that the name is changed. That's the same road. That's how it is with worship. What we call Judaism took a hard turn and left the way. Judaism today is a religion without a sacrifice, without a priest, without the things that we see here. It is Christianity that maintains the ancient religion. It is Christianity that has a high priest. It is Christianity that has a sacrifice made once for all. It is Christianity that has the temple. Peter says it's a temple of living stones being built up together. Not of block, not of stone, not of rock. But nevertheless, the temple, God's house. It is Christianity that Paul says is the Israel of God. It may still be called Judaism, but it took a hard right or left or whatever. It took a hard turn. The straight way may have changed names. It may be called Christianity today, but it is the continuation of this religion that we see here in Exodus 24. Unless you think I am making that up, Lest you think that I have just conjured that out of nowhere. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1082. 1082. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. As you're looking there, we just went through Acts about a year ago. As you're looking there, I'll remind you of where we are. In Acts chapter 2, it is the founding of the church. It is the account of Pentecost and of Peter preaching and of people coming to the Lord and being baptized. Acts 2 is the founding of the church. And we have said, we've made the case that firsts are exemplars. Firsts are to be held up and followed. So what do we have at the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' Teaching. The Apostles' teaching, we know it as the New Testament. It's the Word of God read and preached. They devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship corporate. They came together. They did not do this individually. To the breaking of bread, most scholars are agreed that that's communion. Lord's table and the prayers. What have we argued are the elements of worship in Exodus 24? The reading and preaching of Scripture, the corporate gathering of the people, the the uh, 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 the whole thing being done with the assumption that God is listening, prayer, and the partaking of His meal with Him, communion. What do we see at the outset of the Christian church? Exactly these same elements. We stand as the inheritors of the covenant renewal service that we see in Exodus 24. Let me offer just a couple of ways that that might apply. 
apply, but one of them doesn't apply directly to you. I said a couple, probably these three here. One of them is the way that I preach and organize worship. I'll tell you right now, I'm going to have to change. I have to do things differently in light of this. It's my calling as the shepherd, the earthly shepherd, the under-shepherd of this world, to make sure that we're constantly reminded of the covenant renewal happening in corporate worship. There are some other implications for all of us. One of them is this. If you're trying to go it alone, if you're trying to walk the Christian life by yourself, it may not be the Christian life you're walking. If you're trying to walk the Christian life by yourself, it may not be the Christian life you are walking. Consider what's going on in covenant renewal. Where do we see covenant renewal in the world today? One common example would be that of the renewal of wedding vows. And it is not uncommon for wedding vows to be renewed in the aftermath of a, of a catastrophe in the marriage. Now, certainly some people renew their vows for other reasons. But one of the things that happens is there is unfaithfulness in the marriage. As a part of mending that relationship, they renew their covenant vows. Now imagine this scenario. The offended party says, let's renew our vows. The faithful spouse says, let's renew our covenant relationship. And the unfaithful one says, nah, I'm going to be sure about that. God is the offended party. You and I are the offenders. He is the faithful God. We are the faithless ones. And he says, come, I want to renew my covenant with you. I want to reestablish the relationship. I want to reopen the lines of communication. I want to remind you again of what I've done for you. I want you to be encouraged again in what I have for you. And we say, nah, I got other things going on. If you're trying to walk the Christian life alone, it is probably not the Christian life you are walking. Anyone who would walk away from a God like that doesn't know that God. How could we not sing with great joy, give with phenomenal generosity, serve with hearts full of a, 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 a pleasure and, and happiness? I have sinned against him over and over and over again, and he says, come to me, come back to me. Let me renew my covenant. With Another implication I would share is this. Think about what this means for witnessing, for testifying to friends and loved ones and neighbors. Have you ever had somebody say to you, well, why do you bother going to church today? Why are you going to church all the time? Why are you going to church? Think about how to think about that response. What do you mean, why am I going to church? 
I have sinned against God, and he wants to renew the relationship. Why would I not go? I'm going to church because I got a God who wants to renew his covenant with me despite all my sin. Despite all my wickedness. He says to me, come, have fellowship with me. Be renewed in your relationship with Corporate worship is covenant renewed. It includes the reading and preaching of God's word. It includes the fellowship, the corporate gathering of the saints of God. It includes uh, 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 prayer. It includes communion. By the way, it includes some other things, and we're going to look at those next week. But for now, let it sink in. Let it wash over you. God wants to renew with you every week, every Sunday, every Lord's Day. He wants to renew with you His covenant relationship. A wonderful, wonderful God, we are indeed sinners, broken and fallen, wandering faithlessly from your word, breaking your covenant routine. Yet we have seen here this morning that at the launch of corporate worship, at the outset of your people gathering together to worship you, you set forth an example of what that looks like. It is covenant renewal. Is you coming to your people, applying the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ to them, inviting them to speak to you through prayer, inviting them to commune with you, to enjoy table fellowship and the intimacy that is involved with We are amazed by this. Let it wash over us. Let it change us. Let it filter into our hearts and minds. Let us be a people who live in light of the joyous reality that you are our covenant renewing God. A faithful one, even to covenant partners who are faithless. We lift this up. In Jesus' name. Amen.